Radio Mano Papachango. Welcome to this special bonus episode of Tangentially Speaking, a recording of an event that happened last week uh, at the Strand Bookstore on Broadway in beautiful NYC with myself, Neil Strauss, the author of The Truth, uh, which just came out last week, and The Game, which everyone's heard of and everyone who hasn't read it hates, uh, including myself. Uh, I read some of it, uh, but when I first heard about it, I really um, didn't like the idea. And uh, and Esther Perel, who wrote Mating in Captivity, has been doing couples therapy for 30-odd years, I think she said, um, and has a lot of insights in how relationships work and don't work and so on and so forth. Uh as is clear, if you listen to the last episode of Tangentially Speaking, Neil and I are friends and whatever issues I had with him uh, about the game and about, you know, the whole pickup artistry scene um, are no longer issues because I didn't know him then. He was just, you know, this public figure and I thought that that was kind of um, a lame approach to dating. But, you know... It's easy for me to say because I've been relatively successful in dealing with women. I've, in fact, when I first met Neil, um, within half an hour of chatting, he said to me, uh, I'll bet you had um, sex with a woman before you were 16 or 17, right? And I said, yeah. And he said, I said, how do you know that? He said, well, guys who have success success with women um, in their sort of mid-teen years are always comfortable with women thereafter. Whereas men who don't have success with women until they're in their 20s or later will never be, success, will never be comfortable with women. And I can really, I can relate to that. I think there's a lot of angst, anger, rage that's built up by teenage guys who are just overwhelmed by a desire for intimacy. And it's not just sex. It's being loved. It's being touched. It's being held. And yes, there's a lot of it is is testosterone-driven um, libido. But when that doesn't have uh, a healthy expression, it builds up and and curdles into rage. And often that rage is directed against women for the rest of these guys' lives. Um, and now it's very important that we all understand that women aren't the uh, the cause of this problem. Women are holding back from these guys because they live in a culture in which they're told that their sexuality is something that needs to be hoarded and 
um, uh, bartered with on the marketplace of relationships because it's one of the few things that they've got of any value. So, uh, you know, the monopoly has to be defended at all costs. But aside from the question of who's to blame, there is the, the undeniable fact that there's an awful lot of sexual frustration among young men and that that often expresses itself as violence. Violence against women, violence in, in language and thought in terms of misogynistic media that's, that's produced, um, the sort of sick jokes that one can hear in around a certain kind of frat boy asshole society um, and and violence against other people. You know, as I said in a previous podcast, this guy in Oregon uh, started out his declaration by saying, I'll die a virgin. And then there was the guy in Southern California who was all pissed off because women didn't like him. And, you know, you look at these Things I think Bill Maher did a, a bit about this in his show last week about how sexual frustration is fueling a lot of this rage that is expressed as, uh, you know, school shootings in the United States. And by the way, it's something we have in common with the Taliban yet again. Another thing that we have in common with those guys. Uh, there's a, a great paper from the I think it was published in the 70s by James Prescott about how he did a a meta-analysis of all the anthropological studies that had been done of different societies at that point. And he wanted to understand the relationship between bodily pleasure and violence. And his hypothesis was that societies in which physical pleasure was acceptable and easily found and expressed would be societies in which violence, levels of violence were lower. And uh, he found that overwhelmingly that's the case. The factors he looked at were how long women breastfed their babies and how much direct physical contact there was between babies and adults and how uh, free teenagers were to play sexually and express themselves sexually on the one side. And then on the other side, he was looking at violence both within the society and uh, war between that society and other societies. Um, And yeah, he found that the more relaxed the societies were about bodily pleasure, the lower their levels of violence were. That's not coincidental, right? If you want to have a, a mean guard dog, you abuse it, and uh, you make it frustrated, angry, and it'll be mean. If you want to have a warlike society, you find ways to inculcate that violence in young men. You find a way to make them frustrated, angry, full of rage, and then you take that energy and you direct it where you want But sometimes that energy can't be directed. Sometimes it explodes. Like any internal combustion engine, sometimes things go awry. And uh, that's the world we live in. That's the country we live in, those of us in the United States. Or in those crazy Arab societies in which sex is seen as a devilish thing. All right, enough of that. 
If you want to support the podcast, there are many ways you can do it, uh, ranging from if you don't have any money but you want to support the podcast, you can go to the iTunes store and write a review. Those are very helpful. Just find uh, Tangentially Speaking in the iTunes store and leave a rating and a review there. You can uh, support uh, me indirectly uh, through leaving a review on Amazon for uh, Sex at Dawn if you liked the book. If you read it and you want to tell people uh, what you liked about it, um, that's always helpful. I think there are 600 and some reviews now. It would be great to break 1,000. Wow. Get into four digits. Um, another way you can uh, support the podcast at no expense to you, again, if you're on Amazon, is ordering things through our affiliate link. All you need to do is go to chrisryanphd.com, find the Amazon ad on the right margin there, click on that, and then bookmark that landing page on Amazon and just use that whenever you go to Amazon. And whatever you buy will get a percentage. So let's look at some things that people bought in the last week here. Uh, let's see. Someone is going traveling. They bought a Belton USA men's leather travel money belt, 34 inch waist. Nice. They're going to hit the road. Um, uh, jockey men's underwear, classic boxer brief, a four pack. Now look, whoever bought that, we got a buck 12 out of it. Okay. Cost them nothing. They, they paid 15 bucks for their boxer briefs. And we got a buck. So that comes directly out of Amazon's money, not out of your pocket. So that's a great way to do it. People are buying books. Uh, I see a lot of these um, book links are from uh, our page, chrisryanphd.com. Again, you'll see there's a tab, Recommended Reading. So if you buy any of those books there, uh, we get a, a cut. So I see Pilgrim at Tinker Creek, at Play in the Fields of the Lord. People are buying those. Great books, uh, I recommend. Maybe the guy who bought that travel belt bought the Lonely Planet, Rajasthan, Delhi, and Agra book. Hey, that's going to be fun. The book cost him 20 bucks, and we get a buck 49 out of that. So, again, what a great way to support the podcast. If you don't have money to, uh, to donate directly, that's a way to do it indirectly. Um, those of you who do have some cash and you want to support the podcast financially, the best way to do that is through fundwhatyoulove.com. Go there. You'll see Tangentially Speaking. Click on that. You enter your credit card information one time only, and you just say, okay, I want to give a buck a month, five bucks a month, 10 bucks a month, whatever you can afford, whatever makes sense for you. You do it, and every month it just pulls it out of your credit card. You cancel whenever you want. Um, and that way I see I've got a certain budget so I can afford to do things like fly around and interview people. Uh, what else do we have here on the Amazon? I'm just looking at the Amazon report from the last week. Uh, Kink Lag. Oh, oh, here we go. Kink Lab 3 Snap Cock Ring, comma, leather. <clears throat> That's nice. Uh, don't know who bought that, but it cost them nine twenty-two, and guess how much we get? Sixty-nine cents. That's appropriate. So whoever bought that leather cock ring <laughs> donated sixty-nine cents to the podcast. Very nice. Red palm oil, sustainably produced. Um, oh, that's no. I thought that was a lube. That's uh, that's to eat. Somebody bought some Tibetan Buddhist green sandalwood beans, or beads, sorry. 
Hmm, 17 beads. Okay, that's cool. Now, there's stuff you can buy on Amazon that you might not imagine you could buy on Amazon. Someone bought a Serta Motion Essentials Number 2 Adjustable Foundation, which I think is is a mattress, and uh, it cost them 800 bucks, and $60 goes to the podcast. Fantastic. So there you go. You're buying a mattress, and... Uh, you get it on Amazon. I assume that's you're getting a good price on it, and a big chunk of that actually, seven point five percent, goes to the podcast. So that's super cool. Skywalker trampolines, jump and dunk trampoline with safety enclosure and basketball hoop. Oh, some kids are going to be having a blast. Very cool. And uh, twenty bucks comes to the podcast. So this stuff can add up, folks. It's really nice, and it's uh, it's a nice bonus. You know, I've got some some questions about Amazon as a business model, but let's face it, a lot of people are using Amazon, and if you are, uh, that's a great way to uh, send some money to the podcast. All right, that's it. No big rant this week, uh, aside from what I already did, and as far as the advertising goes, that's about it. Uh, just a reminder, if you uh, want some t-shirts, we've got those great Sure Design t-shirts at my site, chrisryanphd.com. Click on the store. Mom will send them out to you. She loves doing that. Say hi to mom. Sometimes people write nice things in the in the notes on the order forms, and she always forwards them to me and says, oh, look, people are so sweet. So <laughs> thanks for being sweet to Julie. She's a sweetheart herself. Anyway, there are Sex at Dawn shirts. There are Tangentially Speaking shirts. There are Paleo Modern shirts. And, of course, the Civilized to Death shirts that everybody loves. And we see bopping around Portland and, and New York and other places. So get yourself some of that. Winter's coming up. we got hoodies as well. Uh, so whatever you like, Julie, my mom, will be happy to send it out to you. Thanks for listening to this podcast. I hope you enjoy this special edition. And I'll be back next week with another interesting conversation if the creek don't rise. Got a lot of really positive feedback uh, about uh, the Kim Churchill songs that I played in an earlier episode. So I'm going to throw another one in here. This is called Coated in Concrete by the Australian musician Kim Churchill. If you want to hear more of his work, uh, listen to the episode with West. I think it's two or three episodes back from this one. No.
concrete walls and clear of all their sin Code their days and ways and leave them Let me roll down through the canyons Till I reach a county line Don't answer My Barcelona, um, buying weed from a tattoo artist named Kian, and he, we were chatting, that awkwardness, while he's weighing the weed, and uh, I told him I was writing a book. He said, oh, what's it about? I said, sex. He said, oh, you got to read the game, man. So what's the game? He said, oh, it's all about picking up women by making them feel bad. <laughs> and I was like, yeah, no, I don't think so. That's not really what I'm going for. And uh, so I had this impression of Neil that a lot of people have had, you know, the initial impression. And then I think you had lunch with um, Polly? Oh, yeah. yeah that's what, was it. that? That's it. Yeah. yeah, in San Francisco, and she put us in touch. And I was like, that the, that's the pickup guy, right? And she's like, no, come on, he's cool, he's a really good guy. And she runs these great parties called Kiki Salon, like these right. kind of amazing, yeah. like, it's, it's nighttime, we're all adults, so like these amazing sex parties, but they're really, they're really free, and they're kind of costumed, and they're really playful and fun. There's no, like, kind of, uh, the, the, just the best energy, as far as, as far as all the sex parties I've been to there. <laughs> 
so yeah, so you you uh, interviewed me over Skype for this book. That's right. That's right. Yeah. Uh, and, and so basically, yeah. yeah. And so the idea was like I kind of read Chris's book, and I was thinking when I started writing this book, the idea was like, and this wasn't the conclusion, but the real idea. And the thing about writing a book or doing any kind of creative project, who here is kind of an artist of some sort, you have to let go, you might have a plan or an idea, but you have to let go of it in the face of reality. That's the, all my books start with a different idea than they end up being. And so the idea with this was, listen, marriage is likely an anachronism. I think a, some surveys even say like four out of ten people believe marriage is an anachronism, the facts in the book, I forget what it is. Uh, you know, 50% of marriages around that figure, there's some debate about that, but around that figure end, end of divorce, there aren't really good stats on this. If you look at the infidelity statistics, honestly, they're so all over the place, anywhere from 13% to 76%, but still one out of 10 is high, and obviously people lie in self-reported surveys anyway, especially about infidelity, so you can't trust any facts to read about this stuff. But anyway, the fact is, a lot of marriages aren't working, a lot of people aren't happy, three out of 10 children are not fathered by the parent, no, three, sorry, 3% 3 of children, that's a different number, 3%. Their figure, by the way, I, the, I went to the map for all the statistics in the book, because the popular statistic on the internet is 10% of kids aren't, parented by the father who they think they're parented by. It's actually 3%. Uh, something like over 90% of couples aren't happy after their first child. Only 38% of married people report themselves as happy in that state. Again, the actual facts are in the book. These are just my best guess as to what I remember them being. But the point being, I thought, this whole institution is broken. Let's find a better way to live that's true to ourselves. There's no science that report that, that supports monogamy whatsoever. Uh, so. And the, there's one paper on it that supports monogamy, and I called the authors, and they said, well, there's some social reasons that why monogamy is good, but there's no real scientific reason. It's just, can help the culture in some ways. So the point being, I called Chris, and I said, listen, man, I read, I read the book, and I'm like, okay, rather than me say what your theory is, do you want to say it shortly? And we'll talk about other stuff. I want to talk about your new book, too, if that's cool. So it's, you want to say the theory in, like a, in a nutshell? <laughs> you know what a dirty question that is. Uh, yeah, you spend five years working on a book and then someone tells, tell me in five seconds what your book's like. You help me, you help me, because I haven't been able to talk about this book in the press, and you're like, just say it's a love story. Yeah, but it, it is. is. The that's, truth that's is a love story. It's a beautiful, yeah. beautiful book, by the way. Um, uh, the Theory and Sex at Dawn, that, that I co-authored it with my wife, Casilda Jetta. The, the basic theory is that the argument is that human sexuality isn't primarily about reproduction. We have way more sex than we need to, um, given the number of babies we produce. And so human sexuality has been co-opted through our evolution for social functions, for establishing and maintaining intimate relationships with people, which were uh, essential to our survival as hunter-gatherers. So if you look at gorillas, for example, um, Gorillas have sex intercourse about 10 to 15 times per birth. Humans, the average is closer to 1,000. And if that number seems high to some of you, believe me, it seems low to others. <laughs> uh, so human sexuality is, uh, fulfills social functions, not uh, primarily reproductive functions. And the only other mammals that fit this um, description are bonobos and chimps, which are our two closest primate relatives, and dolphins, uh, all of which are highly social, highly intelligent animals, and for them also sexuality has been co-opted for social uh, purposes. So what we then show is that long-term sexually exclusive monogamy is not the natural state of our species. It's something that you can choose to do, 
just like you can choose to be a vegetarian, but choosing to be a vegetarian doesn't make you an herbivore, right? Uh, your species is an omnivore. And so that omnivorousness applies to our sexuality, to our taste in art, music, friends, travel, everything. Is that succinct enough? Great. Yeah, that's perfect. That's great. So, so and if you don't have this book, I highly recommend it. I'm sure it's here somewhere. You can autograph while you're here. <laughs> so, uh, and it's a great book. It's really well, it's really like enjoyably written. It's a fun book to read. So, so, so I kind of read this book and I thought, well, maybe the natural way we're meant to be is in these kind of groups and groups where kind of sexuality and friendship and parenting and all these things are just shared amongst the groups, amongst the group. And so, and so I thought, why don't I do that, kind of inspired by this book. And I put together like a house where we live according to the principles of how we're actually supposed to live and we kind of do really healthy, just a healthy way to live. We do maybe yoga in the morning, we do meditation, we talk nonviolent communication. It was all people in varying degrees of open or alternative relationships and I thought, I'm gonna make a new way to live and that's gonna be the book that we create this new world. And on the, uh, on the fifth, no, somewhere, maybe the fifth or sixth day, Someone in a jealous rage tried to kill me with an axe. <laughs> and so our free love commune almost turned into the Manson family. So, and, and, and Chris made the great point that even though that's maybe how we were, how we have, we've been so civilized and socialized that all bets are off. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you use the phrase the way we're naturally supposed to be. That's a phrase I would never use. Uh, I wouldn't even use the word naturally, uh, you know, um, because it's so loaded. Uh, the fact, you know, we did live in a certain way 20,000 years ago. That doesn't mean that's the way we should live now, especially when there, you know, there's so much pre-existing social um, indoctrination that we would have to fight against in order to do that. So, so what, what do you think? And I, and I, and I, agree, with, I agree with what you're saying, which is, so, so my thought is, do you think that if people are sort of like using science or evolution as a justification for their behavior now, oh, that's what we're supposed to do, or look, that's, it's like, I almost feel like you could probably find any tribe or species to justify any behavior. Yeah, I read your epilogue. Yeah. I resented the use of the word ridiculous, by the way. Oh, did I use that? Did I use the word ridiculous? <laughs> that was point, yeah, that's, at, least, at least your name was nowhere here. <laughs> My name wasn't there. But I think, yeah, go ahead. Well, in, the, in the epilogue to, to the truth, Neil says something about how uh, and I, I don't know, am I giving away the end of the movie here? No, it's cool, it's Talking like double indemnity. It's double indemnity, they want to know how you get to it anyway. Yeah, well it's, it's, uh, it's very well said, but it's basically, you know, he says, look, there is no natural way to form a relationship. There's no one way to love another person. It has to come from the heart, it has to be mutual, it has to be worked out between the two people, and I, I of course, agree with that. Um, but then, I think he's taking a shot at me when he says, you know, you can find any primate or tribe to justify whatever bullshit you come up with. It's ridiculous. By the way, no one has ever said that but you. That was only a shot direct. No one has ever, ever We've gone that after out. Esther with that. Maybe, maybe you're going after Esther. There, there's a, that was not a shot at you. And then I called you up here to public review. Um, because no, because even you say, you don't, don't base your behavior on right. on this book. This is I'm just showing you. There's a lot of myths that are using that people are using that are true, and I'm debunking these myths. Exactly. Uh, so yeah. let's just talk right here before we introduce, introduce Esther. Um, that so I just keep getting flashbacks to this commune and what a bad idea it was. <laughs> uh, but but it was so 
But the yeah. fact that your yeah. commune didn't work out yeah. doesn't mean that communal living isn't a no. good idea. No, right? the problem with it is that I was doing it. <laughs> that, that's like, that's yeah. where the, no, really, the problem was that I was doing it, and, and probably maybe if I did it now, having gone through what I've gone through, I could do it better. And of course, there's an idea called the burning period. Does anyone know what the burning period is? Do you know what the burning period is? Burning you know period? The burning period is this. When a, if, a, if you try and if you change your relationship style, or you open up your relationship, you change that style, there's something called the burning period. It's about two years that it takes to kind of adjust to something new. The, the communication it takes, dealing with the awkwardness, dealing with whatever jealousy might come up, and that's if you're going to open up or change your relationship. It's not going to go well the first time, just mm. like many people's first relationships don't. So that's the burning period. So fascinating, right? And, and that's the idea. I, I think it's funny just to say something really off, off the topic is when you're like trying something new and you're young and you're trying to make it, when I'm trying to, say I was trying to write, I wrote my first book proposal at age 11. It got rejected, right? So I probably didn't get a book published for another like 15 years, you know? And now you get older, you get try one shot at something, right? A TV show or a movie and it doesn't happen. You're like, fuck that, right? You have to deal with the failure and a lot of failure before you get to do anything. And also there's partial failure. One of the things that uh, I get a lot from people is they'll say, um, you know, well, we tried that free love stuff in the 60s and 70s and it didn't work, you know, as if they know every case and, and that the people where it does work, you know, people who have open relationships or are swingers or whatever, as if they're running around telling everybody, right? So there's sort of, a, you know, like I've spoken to therapists who said, well, you know, couples have come to me trying to do an open relationship and it never works. Well, yeah, they're going to a therapist. <laughs> you know, sort of by definition, that's not a good situation uh, if they're going to a therapist. And also I would say to people who make that argument, a lot of stuff did work from the 60s and 70s. A lot of those experiments worked really well. We've got civil rights movement, we've got women's rights movements, we've got... Um, gay rights movement, you know, a lot of that stuff came out of the social experimentation that went on in the 60s. So, yeah, I agree with you. The fact that something doesn't seem to work doesn't mean that there isn't something very valuable that's been learned. And, and it depends on what examples do you choose to look at. Right. There's no real, real study being done. And uh, so, so the other, so let's, I want to talk about your new, new book for, for a second. Is that, can you, can you kind of reveal that here? Are you open to it? Well, just, I don't know. I mean, it it's it's yeah. so far from being published, it's probably six to nine months out. Um, but I talk about it on my podcast all the time. Cool. Let's just maybe, uh, and, 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 I, and I love, and I, and I love the, this idea, which is, uh, it's, the, it's basically like a, a screed against civilization. <laughs> yeah. You mentioned we are talking earlier at dinner about Against Love, a polemic against Laura love. Laura Kipnis book? Right, yeah. yeah. This book is kind of against civilization in a way. It's called, against, it's called uh, Civilized to Death, and right now the subtitle is Why Everything's Amazing But Nobody's Happy. Complete ripoff of Louis C.K. Uh, but I credit him, so I hope that'll mean, you know, that'll lead him to read the book and then talk about it on stage and, you know, then I'll get rich and famous. Uh, yeah, exactly. And by the way, what, one fascinating, one thing I was thinking about, and that since you're all here and we all know this, it's like I keep reading the articles that are coming out about the new book, and it's like, player gives up the life for monogamy. It's like the headline, and there's nothing in the book that ever says that, I, that monogamy was right. In fact, that's not even the solution. That's not even the, the answer. So it's fascinating to see like there's this cultural narrative out there, and they yeah. just it just builds its story on top of its story on top of its story. Like right. the book isn't like oh this is all wrong monogamy is right. It really kind of I see those you let go of control when you release something in the culture. Well, it's just like like see. in our book, we never right. say open relationships are better. Right. Right. But right. the book is 
pitched or, or the, the sort of reviews of it often break it down that way, that, oh, it's a book justifying cheaters or whatever. Right. Yeah, it's, you're yeah, right. And, and Chris has had, like, we were talking earlier, like, I guess people get really, I guess, like, they get angry about the game sometimes. They get really angry about Chris's book and feel like some couples feel like, some people feel like their partner left them because they read their, your book, correct? Yeah, yeah, I've, I've gotten some pretty irate emails. <laughs> <laughs> awesome, so, so let, me, let me ask you then, if, uh, what, do you think that the whole kind of monogamy, not, so this is my thought, I just want to get your thought on it, which is I think the idea of these kind of dualities, monogamy, non-monogamy, which one am I going to do, like, are almost false dichotomies. I think defining a relationship gets you in trouble anyway, because, like, Kisilda and my wife uh, and I have been together 16 years, and uh, someone asked me recently, like, what's the secret? 16 years, that's amazing. I, I said, well, the secret is don't think of it as one relationship, because you're not having one relationship. You're having a series of many relationships over that amount of time. She's changed enormously. I've changed enormously. Different things happen in your life. So um, we never talk about the nature of our relationship publicly, and one of the reasons is it's different. You know, if I had said something five years ago, it would be completely different now. So I think that's, the key is fluidity and flexibility. Yeah, it's funny, because that's, that's exactly where we landed at, which is the relationship is like, whatever is tr true, there are three entities in the relationship. There's me, there's her, and there's the relationship. So whatever is true and healthy for all three entities is what we're gonna do. And, and I think it's funny, because I haven't talked, this, I think like a lot of the book is about, I ask a lot of these questions at the beginning of the book, is, but, can you be with someone forever? Is monogamy natural? How to keep passion from fading over time? All that kind of stuff. And the real answer is like they're the wrong questions. Like projecting into the future that's completely uncertain does you no good whatsoever. You can just make the commitment to be faithful, to just say, I love you now. You don't have to love somebody. I just love you now. That's good enough. And if you can love them in each moment, that will probably last longer than thinking all the time, can I love someone forever? Like I was taught, I, I did something, it was like a BuzzFeed, I did something for them today, and the woman was talking about her husband. And she said the day they got married, this is a perfect set introduction to our next guest, actually. She said the day they got married, uh, she, he fell asleep in the bed, and she looked over at him and said, oh God, now I gotta be, this is the guy I gotta be with for the rest of my life, he fell asleep on me. But if he just fell asleep in bed next to her on any other night, it would just be fine, it just happened to be that night, and she attached some symbolic meaning to it, and then projected into a million nights this happened later, versus just saying, we just got married, that's awesome, I love this guy, and he'll be awake later, he's not gonna sleep forever. Right? So we have these crazy ideas in our head that we get fixated on that like ruin our, our happiness. And you'll see in the book, they all have to do with shit that happened in the past or shit that we have no control or prediction over in the future. So with that in mind, another really influential book that I really was excited to read, and it's, it's very similar kind of to, to you in a way, Chris, also somebody who sort of just had a, had a long career and then kind of wrote this book and it took off like a, like a firestorm and changed her life. And I guess that's the same as me, of me as well. Uh, a book called Mating in Captivity. Has anyone ever read this book? All right, cool. The rest is so it looks like a lot of book sales for Mating in Captivity and Sex at Dawn. So I'm really excited because I asked that, I did a Brooklyn signing a few days ago, and again, very few people raised their hands. So I'm excited to introduce these authors and their nice kind of companions to the truth, even though all three books are very different. And so I'll just introduce you, Esther Farrell. Thank you for being here. She literally just hopped off a plane from Chicago, hot-tailed it here, 
and she just came here to, to, to talk about this. And we'll, again, we'll, we'll glance off this pretty quickly because you told your story a, a, a million times. We were doing, you were doing a kind of a lot of other work and you were doing uh, ther therapy with, with, with couples, correct? And, uh, and you felt like there were these ideas that nobody was communicating and that needed to be said. So, uh, this works? Yes. Yeah. So, um, I mean, it's going to sound a little strange, but I, I've been a practicing couples therapist for 30 years, partly because I think couples are the most fascinating unit, the most difficult to work with, the most challenging, and they're often the most useless. <laughs> um, couples therapy is often really useless. But uh, um, I did not really think much about sexuality. Why? Because I was brought up with one very clear idea that many therapists often are brought up with, which was that a sexual problem in a relationship is the consequence of a relationship problem. You have to get the relationship to improve, you have to fix the relationship, and the sex automatically follows. Therefore, you never have to talk about sex. It's kind of a tautology. And um, what I saw was actually, and that was what, what launched mating, was happy couples who love each other and they just don't have any desire for each other, or not enough. Couples who often claim um, that they feel very loved by their partner, and it's been years since they felt wanted, and they know the difference. And so I began to think love and desire, they relate, and sometimes they also conflict. And why does it fade, even when people love each other? Because if they didn't like each other, they give up. So that's kind of an obvious thing. Why write? And um, that became mating. You know, we don't mate well in captivity. I so agree with much of what you and, said. And the funny thing was, uh, Chris got turned on to Esther's books because he wanted to call his book Mating in Captivity, yet, yet it had already been cleverly taken. It's such a great title. Uh, so let me ask what Chris says in his book. Thank you. Who's here? Years? No, 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 no. It's good to be anybody's, guys. It's good to be anybody's. Um, so, uh, so, you know, Chris says, and I'm probably misquoting, but kind of like sex and love are like wine and cheese. They go nicely together, but they're not like the same thing. They don't always have to be together. What's your thought on that? So, I, I think that for some people, love and desire are irretrievably disconnected, and for others, they are intensely wired together. For some, my love, my feeling of security, my knowing that you're there, the certainty you give me, and all of that warm hub unleashes in me a, a sexual freedom. For others, you're knowing so much about me and my sharing so much with you burdens my sexual interaction with you and I do much better in an anonymous place or a place that, has, that is much less loaded emotionally. I think it's a continuum, but as a whole, the verb that rules love for me is to have, and the verb that rules desire is to want. And they operate very differently. One wants to know the beloved, one thrives on mystery, one wants to reduce the tension, the other one needs polarity, one wants to close the gap, the other one needs distance to thrive. They really live in a dialectic interaction with each other. And let me go ahead, Chris. Oh, I was just reminded of, uh, I think it's Jack Morin, who wrote the, is it The Erotic Mind? Yeah, book. classic book 30 years ago, 40. Mm -hmm. um, but he, I remember there's a formula. This, this might cuts in and out, doesn't yes. it? Yeah. Uh, there's a formula in that book where he says, uh, passion is the result, all right, let's do it a different way. Uh, desire plus an obstacle equals passion. So what do we do when we desire someone? If we're successful, we remove the obstacle, right? We move in together. Every great love story is the story of 
desire thwarted. Romeo and Juliet, their families won't let them get together, right? Long distance relationships, whatever. There's always something that stops you from getting close to your beloved, and that's what creates the passion. So what we do is we move in together, share, you know, put our toothbrushes next to each other in the bathroom, listen to each other burping and farting for 20 years, and then wonder why the passion's gone. It's funny, I, from um, Orlando Bloom, the actor, he's mentioned at the beginning of the book, and he was just in the, in the Broadway or play, I think, of Romeo and Juliet. And he was saying, you know, I really studied this really hard. And he's like, I've come to the conclusion, he's playing Romeo in this, that they're just horny kids who want to have sex. And if they, and they actually had a relationship, they wouldn't be able to stand each other. It's just desire. So, yeah. And didn't you quote Orlando In the beginning of the book. Yeah, yeah, yeah. about yeah. a similar issue. Yeah, about yeah. a similar issue. Yeah. So we were talking about this stuff, so I yeah. had to put it in the book. I haven't talked to him since. Hopefully he's cool with it. <laughs> but I, I, you see, I mean, I love Maureen, and his erotic equation is indeed attraction plus obstacles equal excitement. And yes, the obstacles often fade. But you know, one of the framing questions for mating was, can we want what we already have? And of course, I simply think that if you think you have your partner, you're deluded. At the best, they are on loan with an option to renew. They never belong to you. It's the illusion of safety and security that actually tramples a lot of this desire. Once people actually live with an awareness that the other is a grown-up who can at any moment leave because there is no love without the fear of loss, then you actually have the platform for desire. Great. They're great, right? You've got to get their books. They're great. So, so everyone's stunned. That was, so let me ask you a question. I was curious about this. I was talking to somebody yesterday, and he's doesn't want to date his girlfriend anymore, they just broke up, but he's terrified of the thought of her sleeping with anybody else, right? So it's like, I mean, it's, so there's this insane logic that people have, and I, it, they, that they don't want to be with their partner anymore, but they don't want them to sleep with anybody else. Why is that, where does that come from? It's so crazily illogical, and people are so But she's allowed to be, to love someone else, just not to sleep with that person? Uh, probably not even that. Right. And he, but he can do whatever the fuck he wants. Right. That's right. I mean, how does someone have that logic, or that like, you have ever felt like I broke up with someone, but I just so, don't, want, I don't want to feel that pain. Right. Do you want to go first? <laughs> I mean, the image that pops up in my head when you describe this is this, yeah? You all have seen that little kid that goes off to play, and when they go to play, to discover, to explore, they look to see if the adult is there. And if the adult is there, then they turn around and they go further. And if the adult is not there, then this most amazing experience called hide and seek, there is nothing more thrilling, right, than hiding. There is nothing more terror-inducing than the thought that somebody stopped looking for you. It's the same here. I leave you as long as you stand here. I need you to not be any happier than me. I need you to not be able to replace me so fast because then it means that I wasn't that important in the first place. I need you to lament about my, the loss of me. And, but I can go and I can leave more easily as long as I know that you are drowned in sorrow. And um, there is no equality in this story. There, there, there is nothing about love stories, sex stories, and relationship stories that have anything to do with equality or symmetry. By definition, many of us are much more comfortable with our own version of leaving, including non-monogamy and every other version of freedom that we attribute to ourselves, but we don't necessarily feel that comfortable with the freedom of the other. Because you should give up your freedom for my security. That's the equation. It's, it's, so, it's, it's great. I, it's funny, there's a scene in the book, and, it, and this is great, I love what you're saying, because 
so I, my whole thing that I was saying earlier was like, oh, I want to hear, let me, uh, before I get to that, I want to hear your thoughts on that question. What, well, what, what, I, where, where does that come from? What's the logic? What's well, the logic I think we are fish swimming in a poison lake, and so we, you know, we're Tweet all... that. Yeah, <laughs> that shit. Um, you know, we're, uh, we're contaminated by a sick culture, which gets back to the book I'm working on now, you know. If any of you write books, you, you, you know this. Like, everything gets filtered through whatever you're working on at the moment. And so uh, Everything for me is about how sick civilization is. But in Sex at Dawn, we, we use some, some popular culture, for example, you know, the, what's the Sting song or the police, Every Breath You Take, right? That's one of Rolling Stone's top 15 love songs of all time. Talk to Sting about it, he says, well, no, I had just read Orwell. I was writing about the surveillance state. It had nothing to do with love, right? You, can't you see? You belong to me. I'll be watching you every move you make. That's not love. And yet the culture takes it and says, oh, what a beautiful song. Or uh, when a man loves a woman, right? You've all heard that song. It's classic. We've all heard it. What are the words? If a man loves a woman, here's the things he'll do. He'll turn his back on his best friend. He'll spend his last dime to give her the things she needs. He'll sleep out in the rain if she says that's the way it has to be. What the fuck is that? That's not love. That's a pathetic loser sleeping in the rain. What kind of woman wants that guy? You know? So these are the messages we're getting from our culture. And so no, you know, it's no surprise that we're twisted and warped people. I wonder where you, so this is a question you're going to be asked in every interview. I'll prep you for it now. Uh -huh. So every, do you know what question you're going to be asked in every interview about the book? About the next book? About the next book. Why don't you just like go back and live in the woods then? Right. You don't like it. No, they'll, they'll be like, look at you, you're using a microphone, you're using a watch, do you have air conditioning and heating? They're going to say that. So what, what, what's your response going to be? There's going to be every... Like, uh, that's, my response. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that's the dumbest question ever. You're right. It's You'll the one that you always get. I know, but it's so dumb. I mean, you know, it's like... I think the one thing we ought to be share is we get our dose of hate mail. Yeah, yeah, totally. But yeah. It's true, but my new you get hate mail? For the new book? Oh. For the TED Talk? Oh, Whoa. TED Talk really went super viral. Go, you know. uh, yeah. So, yeah, wow. Yeah. So it's like, yeah, it's kind of like, I've, they get into relationships. You've never done a TED Talk, have you? No, I know. Been, that was. was yeah. <laughs> 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 Two TED Maybe it's just because I'm more hated. <laughs> You're more what? More hated. <laughs> so, but it's funny because I'm kind of the villain of getting into relationships. You're the villain of during relationships, and you're the villain of like getting out of relationships. <laughs> wow. No, but yeah. now I'm writing a book about affairs. Oh, I, wow! You're going to well, tell me about it. I, I read about it. I think in the New York Times article and you mentioned that, right? It's tell called me about the state it. of affairs. Great. Cheating in the age of transparency. Great. I love it because I know I was talking to Stephanie Coons, yeah. the. Uh, <laughs> 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 Shit! Another title I wanted to <laughs> I was I was talking to Stephanie Coons, who does who wrote about the history of marriage, and and this is so obviously. Marriage was never, here's your theory, I'll kind of tell you guys, and then I'll say the, qu the question, which is so about what, are, what are, I want to see if your book's about this. So obviously, not obviously, but marriage wasn't a thing about love. Like marriage was just like, uh, like an economic institution. It's like, cool, I can get some more workers for the field, and we can merge our properties, or whatever it is. But it was, it was only about love in like the 17th century? Late the 18th century? Yeah. So the 18th century kind of became an idea about love, and, and it keeps changing. And she says... You know, and then there was the male breadwinner model, and now it's sort of equality, and uh, supposed to be. Uh, and so, like, 
because it was crazy. Like I was reading, there was like this crazy case. I really wanted to do a TV show. You know what? I'm not going to get a tangent within the tangent. Okay. So, so her thought, her theory now is that well, it's everything is changing. Marriages are you're negotiating this, this kind of deeper friendship. You can pick and choose and create your own kind of model. But she said one of the tough things about on our society is back when you're marrying just for other reasons, you can go cheat and have affairs, and that's fine. So we live in a culture that's really open about sexual desire. She said, yet cheating's intolerated less than ever. Yeah, but um, with all due respect. Yes, but that's uh, her, to her. No, to, no, yeah. no, but I, her, yeah. theory, her theory is interesting historically in the sense that, indeed, as long as marriage was an economic enterprise, adultery was the space for love. Once we brought love into marriage, adultery destroys it. That's the shift. Furthermore, monogamy for much of more contemporary history, the period that I deal with, was one person for life. Today, monogamy is one person at a time. So people easily say, I've been monogamous in every relationship. And it's like, it's just, okay? Infidelity has always been a prohibition only on women. There has been a double standard since marriage was invented, and adultery exists since marriage was invented. Men have the freedom to roam, and then you have all these evolutionary and biological theories that come to explain why they should be allowed to roam, and women basically still have nine countries where they can be killed just for looking outside their car. So we will never know the truth, because when it comes to sex, men are meant to lie by exaggerating and boasting and, and, and inflating, and women always will hide and deny and minimize, because that's how they will protect themselves. So the story is one big lie. But affairs, only very, very recently are women able to also express their sexuality transgressively in the form of infidelities, if you want. But even in general, I mean, this is what you were talking about. Before contraception, there's nothing to talk about. You need a minimum of freedom from mortality and from childbirth. You need also an economic freedom. You need a no-fault divorce, which only happened here in the 70s. You need a few things for people to be able to express sexual freedoms. Right, that's why in Sex at Dawn we look at hunter-gatherers and other societies that replicate the kind of freedom that Esther's talking about, right? The, mo the Mosuo in China, for example, where women aren't worried about who's going to take care, who's going to support them because the mother's brothers and sisters are responsible for her babies. So she's not worried about her sexual alliance with a man being translated into economic support. Um, so when you look at societies like the Mosul or lots of hunter-gatherer societies, you find exactly what Esther's saying, where women are free not to worry about... <laughs> yep, tell her yes. If that's my mother, I'll call her back. Uh, the women are free to, uh, to get what they need either directly as in hunter-gatherer groups or through some other social uh, structures as with the Mosuo and others matrilineal societies, they're as interested, now see this is, this gets back to something you said earlier, because these women are as attracted to novelty as the men are. Of course. Yeah. Listen, the big secret is that women get bored with monogamy much sooner than men. <laughs> Let's be very clear about this. But what she has been allowed to do historically about it is shut down. That doesn't mean that her need for sexuality and for novelty and mystery and seduction and plot and play and the erotic aspect of sex, not just the sex act, the four-minute drive-by thing. <laughs> <laughs>
to want sex, it needs to be sex that is worth wanting. And in most of her relationships, the sex after a while is not worth wanting because most of the time the partners get very lazy. If people were as creative in their relationships as they are in their affairs, the landscape would be quite different. But at home, people are lazy. So women figure out if it's not interesting. You see, if we were even to say that female desire is lesser than men's sexual desire, then she needs more to remain interested and to remain excited. She will eat if you cook something special for her, and otherwise she will go eat somewhere else, which means with her kids, with her job, with other things that will keep her busy for a while. That's a very different twist. That's this notion that today I went in Chicago. The first question was asked, men are less monogamous, men are more promiscuous. Yes? Excuse me, you know, give the permissions equally and then let's see. We will never know. That's the thing about natural. There is very little natural about this. We have been so acculturated that there is very little way to know what is actually innate and natural. People do what they know they have the permission to do. People say what they know they have the permission to say. That's very far from what they really feel and think. So, so let me ask you both of your beliefs. I think it's fascinating. It's interesting because... Are we on track, people? Yeah, we're, we're right on track. This is great. This is fascinating. You're right. Fucking pain. Like, honestly, we could listen to you guys speak all day, right? It's fascinating. So, oh, go ahead. I was just going to say, the only... Uh, revi well, not revision, but uh, the only place where I, you and I might disagree or, or have something to talk about... I have to disagree about something. Because there would be no sexual chemistry otherwise. I, I, It's, it's one of many. I'll tell you, Neil was my first guest on Tangentially Speaking, my podcast. podcast. And you can see why it's called Tangentially Speaking. And uh, within about two minutes, somehow I'd lost total control, and he was interviewing me about my mother. <laughs> I mean, what the hell was... We have to do it again, because I think I can, I can stay on the horse a little longer this time. Uh, well, I know what you're talking about. The, the, the whole question of people do what they are allowed to do, what culture gives them permission to do. The only thing I would say to that is that I think women are much better at, at being discreet and hiding things. I don't know whether that's biological or because they've been stoned to death for 10,000 years for any transgression. But it seems like, you know, I'll bet Hillary Clinton has had plenty of lovers, but we'll never hear about them because she's not an idiot. Right? I mean, Bill, that's not fair to Bill, because it wasn't really his fault. Um, but, you know, men, men think they're getting away with stuff, and believe me, but, you're not. But, you know, the whole net theory is that it was, it was uh, his partner who was talking about it that got him caught, so she wasn't... Well, but, yeah, but she was talking to uh, someone she thought was a friend. Right, so, so both... So here's my question. This leads to my question, which right. is this. Before, before you, you, you eviscerate Chris, hold on. <laughs> just, just kidding. So... Are there actually any gender differences that are not cultural in, in behavior, uh, not, not biology? Are there any differences in just behaviorally, uh, with sexual, sexual desire, all this Sexuality, stuff? Sexuality, yes. or about how we create relationships, how we love, all which... That. Are there any differences that are really real? Uh, oh, yeah, sure. <laughs> um, because, as Esther said, you know, aside from culture, women can die from getting pregnant, right? So that's, that's an essential biological difference. Um, just pure health uh, repercussions. Um, women have to carry a baby around. We're talking behaviorally. We, we, we get the anatomy. Yeah, well, <laughs> that affects behavior, right? right? I okay, mean, but, so, but so how? What? 
Yeah, so go into the, what's the, what are the behavioral like things that you think are just... In the contemporary world? I, is that what you're asking? Yeah, or just any gender, are, so there's an argument that, that, that all gender differences are cultural. Yeah, I, I, well, no, I don't think that's true. You know, I think the repercussions of pregnancy and all that are a clear example. Another one, which may be a reflection of the same thing, is I think it's Meredith Chivers who did research where she showed um, uh, a series of different potentially stimulating videos and photographs to people and had them uh, judge how much that thing turned them on. And, and, uh, and then also they were indicating with a dial on the table how much it turned them on. So, they're so you're looking at this thing and like bonobos fucking comes up and you're like, yeah, two. And then, you know, sexy guy walking on the beach, eh, three. And then at the same time, they're measuring genital blood flow. <laughs> and what they found was that the men indicated what their dick said, but women often indicated something that their genitals didn't agree with. And generally, it was their genitals were saying, yeah, and they were saying no. So there could be a schism within a lot of women who grow up in these sexually repressive cultures where they actually believe they're out of touch with what's turning them on, partly because of the sexual repression and partly just because for men, it's pretty easy to see what turns you on. I mean, it's such a shaming culture. I remember, like, there was in a, a in, in a jacuzzi somewhere with a with a guy and his daughters. Sounds wrong. Hold on. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Let's just forget about the context. No. So anyway, we were talking. We were talking, and he was getting game. He was trying to get game tips. He's like, you know, I text these women, they don't respond. I feel like they just befriend me. It's also tough. And then his daughters start talking, and his first daughter, maybe she's like ten. She's like. Uh, I'm not going to be in a relationship until I'm 30. And he's like, good for you. And the other daughter's like, I'm going to be a single pug lady. So here he is shaming his daughters out of sexuality while wondering why women won't, are, 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 you know, are, are desiring him or are connecting with him. So we have this, such this hypocritical relationship in our culture. So That's, that's like the guy right. who wants to break up with his girlfriend but doesn't want her to sleep with him. It's so him. insane. Come like, on, man. Yeah, You're so not insane. playing with your toys. Let someone else play with you. <laughs> <laughs> so what's your thoughts on the gender, on any gender differences being uh, This is like cultural? an eight-hour talk, <laughs> gender differences. We got time. Um, I, I would say like this. I don't often, I mean, there is the whole Chivers studies on the difference between physiological response and subjective response. And the, I find the findings are, are fascinating. But for me, I think that one of the more blatant responses is this. Men are mostly socialized to have one primary language for talking about all their hidden needs, and it's called sex. Through sex, they can talk about love, connection, surrender, abandon, control, <coughs> domination, you name it. It's like, and because it's sexualized, they can kind of hide the needs behind it. Most of the men in relationships that I will work with who are not getting laid, it's not that they miss sex, by the way. If they want sex, they can go get it anywhere. It's all over the place. When they stay put at home, it's because sex is the avenue, the gate to which they get to experience intimacy, closeness, you name it. And it's actually a limiting language. It's too bad that they can't have multiple languages. If intimacy is going to be so important in modern love, and so is sex, and sex is not about procreation, but it's about connection and pleasure, then we should at least be bilingual. The same thing is true for women. 
For women, it's like the talk is five layers of relatedness to finally be able to drop some little sexual hint. You know, God forbid she would be talking straightforward about sexuality. And I think these constraining languages are, are narrow, they don't promote the flexibility and the fluidity that we need. And, if, and I totally agree with you, if you're going to be many years with somebody, we're going to have to, be, no, it's not one relationship. So that's the first major difference. The socialization is completely different. It's a given that men are jealous about the sex and women are jealous about the feelings. It's not a given. By the way, it's the exact opposite in gay couples. When you have the sex, it's the emotional involvement that actually is the threat. So, you know, change the construct, you change the fear. Um, all these distinctions, I think, are enormously old, dualistic, stifling, and, and they're getting boring. It's like, can we talk in a different way? So that's the first thing. Like, when you start to say, you know, here's the thing, another one. The notion is that men are biological creatures in perpetual motion in search of an outlet. That's it. That all, wherever they can, they will. Where is that ever the, the case? You know, the truth is I have yet to hear men in a locker room complain that she wants to jump him and he's not interested. Because that's not the story that's going to be allowed to be said. Now, if we said, let's think about it differently. Do you think that the internal life of a guy does not influence how he experiences his sexuality? If I give you the three obvious male vulnerabilities about sex, one, the fear of rejection. You don't think that that's an internal state that influences your sexuality? Performance and anxiety or performance and, and, and competence drive, is that not an internal state? And the uncertainty about what she feels may never know what she actually feels because she can lie to him to the heavens and he will not have a drop of clue. You know, those are... You just touched every guy's insecurity in this <laughs> So then people still think men are always up for it. Their internal life does not affect sex, but a woman needs all the conditions to be just right because her internal life is all about what's going to dictate her readiness. Seriously? No, but that's not the story that is told. Once I say it, if I've touched the people here, then I actually am correcting the, the conversation. So, so tell me, I want, I'm so curious, I want to know more about your new book. So what's, where you, where's, what's the kind of thesis of the affairs in the <laughs> This is the difficulty. Uh, I know. When you I know, write, I know, I it's very I, hard by to... By the way, I know that. I, I, I'm just doing this book tour. I don't even know how to explain this book. I don't know how to do it. So I did have to do the effort for the TED Talk, and it really forced me to hone it down. If I was to connect it to mating, I would say like this. The same way that it became very clear to me that it is not the loss of love that in inevitably leads to the loss of sex, that it's a different set of forces, that it's this idea that we have of putting passion and security in the same relationship, and that it's very difficult to ask the same person to be your anchor and to be your wave, to be the person who gives you stability and change and surprise and comfort. and just It's really tough to ask one person to do what normally a whole community should be doing. The same thing occurred with affairs. You know, I see way too many people who tell me, I love my partner. Yeah, writing a book about people who are cheating in order to leave is not interesting. And people who don't like each other and are cheating. The interesting thing is, I love my partner. I have no intention of leaving. I'm having an affair. And that, now it's not anymore the symptom theory, right? The symptom theory is, 
If you and I have everything we need together, and we are in this romantic plot together, and we have reached it, there would be no reason to want to go looking elsewhere. By definition, if I'm going to look elsewhere, it's because there's something missing with you. That's the symptom theory. Affairs are always a symptom of a marriage or a relationship gone awry. I'm not so sure. I think affairs often, this is probably one of the key sentences of the book, sometimes, because I'm interested in people who have often been faithful for decades and then one day cross a line, or a decade, a long time, rather, as, as Dan Savage says, they're good at monogamy, they're monogamish, you know? <laughs> and they one day cross that line, and why are they crossing that line? And so, you know, I have a lot of ideas, but the main thing I can say is that all over the world, there's one word that people tell you when they're having an affair, is that they feel alive. And that sometimes when you cross that line, it's not because you want to go find somebody else, it's because you want to go find another self. And it's not so much that you want to leave the person that you are with, but you want to leave the person that you have become. And you want to reconnect with these lost parts of yourself because you're bored with yourself because you have basically accrued a sense of deadness, often out of laziness. And that's the beginning of the state of affairs. But there's a great line. I, I'm going to read it since this, I never read it in a reading. I read one paragraph. Great. I'm glad I inspired you. Yes. <laughs> Actually, the first chapter is infidelity. You should know. Uh, in his book. Yeah, it's true. I know. Oh, you started reading it already. That's awesome. <laughs> You guys talk amongst yourselves for a second while I find this page. Milan Kundera in uh, The Unbearable Lightness of Being makes a really interesting distinction, I think. He, he talks about uh, how there are two types of womanizer. Now, it turns out that in French, the word he used doesn't really translate to womanizer. It translates to men, a lover of women. Is that what it is? Right. But in the English version, they said womanizer. Okay, so what he says is that there are two types. There, there's the epic and there's the romantic. The romantic is the guy who's always disappointed because he's, he's on a lifelong quest for the perfect woman. And he always thinks he's found her and then a few months or a few years into it he realizes mm, she's not actually perfect. And so he abandons her and goes looking somewhere else. And then there's the epic womanizer or lover of women. Uh, and I'm sure this works the other way too, who is never disappointed because he finds every woman fascinating and attractive. And so he's the guy who's just going from one to another happy as hell. And the women love him because he's a great lover generally and he's really interesting and he's fun, but they know he's never gonna be the one, right? Uh, and so when you guys are talking, I was thinking about this, like why do people have affairs? Yes, I'm sure sometimes it's, psychological problems, it's a problem in the relationship, it's a sense of deadness, it's a lot of the things you elucidate in this book, but I think sometimes it's just because that's the kind of animal we are. Why not? Why do we travel? Why do we go to Thai restaurants? Here, you know? here, here's, here, <laughs> yes, that's a good argument. You know, honey, why do we go to Thai restaurants? <laughs> Especially Thai here, restaurants. Here's the, thought, here's the thought I have in the book as someone who obviously cheated and got caught and and, and, and wrote a book. I, I really feel like a dick when I'm on the news. Like, I'm like, well, what happened? I'm like, I, I don't want, like, it's like I cheated on my wife and wrote a book. You should really read it. It's like, it's just like, no, it just doesn't work, man. I'm like, girlfriend, it's just, I'm just a dick. So, but, but here's, here's what I think about now. It's like, what, what made me actually go, like, kind of on this journey was like, it, all that makes sense. What didn't make sense to me was why, why was I lying about it, right? Yeah. Lying was about the control. So my thought, now, this is my thought now, and I'm curious for your guys' take on it, then I'll read this quote, which is, I think now if there's someone, let's just say if we're in a place in our relationship where it is, like just say right now, let's say there's somebody I want to sleep with, right? And maybe I have a discussion with her, we discuss it, and she's not comfortable with that. I have a choice to make. I have a choice. You always have a choice. I can say, you know what? 
I'm gonna sleep with her anyway, I know you don't like it, and I'm gonna do that. And if that having sex with that person is more important than my kind of relationship, then I can do it. But the idea is I'm just gonna be honest no matter what. That's more important than my relationship or more important than however she feels. That's cool, but if you make the I feel like if you make the decision just 100% be honest and then live with consequences. I think the line is about the control and not even just about sex, even about desire, about watching porn, about who you're attracted to. You're like, if I don't tell you the truth, then you won't get upset, you won't leave me, you won't have negative emotions that I'll have to go deal with. So I think a lot of, a lot of that is, was just about control. So the affair to me, the sex outside wasn't the problem, was that I violated my own ethics. But I, I can't wait, I see you're, you're very, she's, she's like rearing up for a roar. Let's do it, do it, go. No, no, but this is, because, because this is a cultural thing. I mean, you're a North American and you really believe in the moral cure of truth. Mm. You know? um, and uh, uh, this yeah. is this is a uh, you know there are a lot of people who may live in I'm actually totally agree you know there's a zillion different kinds of affairs and all of that but the idea that that you are lying to the person you know there are plenty of people who've been lying to themselves for a long time and this particular relationship is actually the first time they're truthful with themselves so it's not just you know. The, the, the whole conversation of, on affairs here is really the line, the line, and, in res and as a result, you know, people will blurt out truths to clean their conscience, to make somebody else have nightmares for the next 10 years, uh, and, and supposedly, you know, my thing is this, think, breathe, and think about the other before you talk. You know, that, when I read that in Mating and Captivity, that's when I really was hooked. Well, that was the first book that I had read uh, where the therapist said, you know what, sometimes telling the truth isn't the best move. Sometimes you're telling the truth because you're a selfish bastard and you're trying to pull them into your suffering with you. Um, now, this is after the fact, right? This is not saying don't go into a relationship being honest. But also you raise the question of, of North America. I know you're very multicultural and I live in Spain most of the time. There's a book called The Lust in Translation, have you read that? Yeah. Pamela Druckerman, where she goes to many different cultures and looks at like, you know, we're all talking about adultery as if we know what it means. But it turns out it means different things in different countries. In uh, Russia, I think it is, if you have an affair during summer vacation, it doesn't count. <laughs> right? And in Japan, if you pay for it, it doesn't count. And so different cultures have these different sort of pressure relief valves, you know. In America, a lot of people say, if you look at porn, that's an affair. That's, that's cheating on your wife or husband, I guess. I don't think, I think that's bullshit. What do you guys think about that? First of all, my first thought is... Do you have a right to any privacy? So my, so my first thought is, I feel like we make these cultural differences too quickly and too much. Like in that book, which I enjoyed, she's like, I went to a culture, I talked to seven people, and now I've defined that whole culture. Like, you know, like, I'm, not, I'm sure not every Japanese wife or Russian wife or husband would agree with that. So I think it, we're, we're too quick to say this is how that culture is. There's just a line drawn somewhere. Uh, and, and, also, is and our culture is exquisitely ridiculous it. about sex. I'm sure... Cool. That's <laughs> that's your every culture has their own ridiculous stuff, but I don't. I just I don't know. I just don't know if I always buy that this is how that culture is and this is how that culture is. And well, that's so what about France? Things. What do you think about affairs in France, for example? I'm not French. Belgian. Belgian. <laughs> yeah. Okay, but no, I think I, there's a lot of different nuances. You see, the concept of truth telling and transparency is very much a part of a general cultural ethos. It doesn't just apply to sex. 
Get to the point. Don't beat around the bush. State it as it is. Get to the facts. This country is pragmatic, goal-oriented, direct, unvarnished, and it prides itself on it, and it does great for business. But it's not particularly erotic. <laughs> you know, so um, it doesn't tolerate ambiguity. It doesn't tolerate uncertainty. It doesn't deal well with the imponderables. It likes black and white. It talks about affairs as victims and perpetrators. Excuse me for something that isn't criminal anymore. Can we come up with a language that actually embraces the complexity of people's lives? Relationship is complex. And when you go on for a long time and we've doubled our lifetime, it's not something you just reduce to black and white and good and bad and villain and saints. And that's the conversation. So France, Americans don't cheat one iota less than the French. They just feel more guilty about it, <laughs> you know? But the French have not, don't suffer any less. Suffering and pain and betrayal and rejection and jealousy are, are, are rather universal feelings. So the pain is not different. But pain is always socially constructed. It takes place within a cultural discourse that tells you what you should be uh, hurting about and how you should be hurting about it and what you should be doing. For example, one of the big changes here, because this is what was interesting, you said your book is a love story. And it's interesting, we talk about sex, we talk about monogamy, we talk very little about love. That would be very different in France. We would be talking about love much of the time. And the rest would be subsumed under that category. The big thing, for example, that's changing here is if you have been cheated on, there's only one respectable thing to do, and that's leave. And the new shame is the shame of staying. Used to be that people were ashamed to divorce, now they are ashamed if they stay because somebody cheated. And if you say, but I love that person, you're a real fool. You know, what an idiot you are. How naive can you be? Is that all the credit we give to love? I mean, does it just have to be rosy and pink the whole time? Or do we actually go through major stressors and crises and we come back of it and it becomes stronger because of it? That's the failures that you were talking about. Love becomes resilient and robust because it's been shattered many times because you hate the person you love and all of these live together. Ooh. I love the passion. that and be transfixed. It's so awesome. You know, because you're in touch, you're honestly like, I think about a couple things you're talking. One is I remember like when I was doing the game, like I'm like very, so it's very cerebral. And I really like worked it. like, how can I bring my sexuality, like I hide my sexuality because I feel like it's a bad thing. How can I bring my sexuality and sensuality the way I talk and do it so, so See, I lovely. think you learn to love. Yeah. You may have had plenty of other women that you could have loved before, and if I understood, the one you went, already you were before, she left you and the whole thing. Yeah. You learned to love. Exactly. And you learned the compromises, the sacrifices, the choices, the, and, and the gifts, and it's a big package. And to have your book be described as a redemption book of the guy who used to screw around and now he's gone Catholic, is a little boring. <laughs> boring and not, not true. It's such, it's such an easy cultural, cultural narrative. Right. So that's, that's why it's a yeah, love story. Yeah, exactly. So, but it's yeah. so true. I wish you could please do the media interviews instead of me. So, so I'll read you this paragraph, and then we'll open up to a couple questions, and then we'll do some some science. So, I don't remember what we we're talking about when I thought of this paragraph. But anyway, oh, this is about affairs. So, so there's a thanks. So there's a, there's a guy in the book, and basically, he he's in sex addiction rehab because he his wife like resents him, doesn't do you like know him. That I do not believe in the concept. I get it. I believe, I'm with you. I'm with you. And it's not just me. Yeah, no, I'm, 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 with, I'm with you. By the way, 
I'm with you, everybody in sex addiction rehab were just people who had affairs. They weren't like guys who were doing, like breaking the law. They're really sweet guys. So this guy, we decided was a marriage, I decided he was a marriage addict because he's addicted to his marriage and can't let go of it, but it's so unhealthy for him. So anyway, so he has this wife who resents him. He comes home, so she's like, do you want to hear about my day? She doesn't care, they never have sex. So, so I write this. What's incredible is not that Adam had an affair, but that he, that he hasn't had another one. When your wife is tired of making the effort to understand you, when she's fed up with hearing the same stories coming out of her mouth, when she holds so much resentment that it poisons every conversation, when she's nicer to telemarketers than she is to you, when the only time she's passionate anymore is when she's criticizing you, that's when you want a mistress. Someone whose eyes glisten with attraction when she looks at you, whose ears perk up when you speak, whose hands crave the feel of your skin, whose thighs moisten when you kiss her. Someone who actually appreciates your presence and treats it like a gift instead of a punishment. Someone who will see you the way your wife once saw you before she grew so fucking sick of the sight of you. <laughs> yeah, that's it. So let's open up the questions for this. All right, this is by your yearbook. We'll start with you. Uh, do they need microphones? No, okay. right, thank you very much, Neil, for coming. Everybody, it was a great talk, a lot of food for thought. Thanks again for all the influence, wonderful writing over the years. I had a two-part question. First one is, uh, curious about the relationship that you're in now. If you could tell us a little bit about that. How is it different from other long-term or monogamous relationships you've been in? What kind of things do you want to work at on this one compared to what came before? And the second part is, just want to go back in time a little bit. Are you still in touch with Mystery and what's he up to now? Cool. Awesome. So two answers. One is mostly read the book, I would say. But one thing that's not in the book is I feel like sometimes like the success of the relationship is how quickly we recover from the conflict. It's not always being good. Like when we have in conflict, I'm super excited. Because I'm like, well, we get to resolve this. And then something real is happening now. It's easy when we're happy when we get into conflict. My, what I'm into now is how quickly can we recover from the conflicts, not never having it. So it's fun. Like to me, like, like you were saying, it's great to have couples together because whenever I see a couple together, like right away you can get to everybody's issues so quickly when they're both together, right? Versus someone on their own, you gotta fish around. So I love it because it brings up all the stuff and we gotta work on it together. So to me, it's the greatest place for growth. Sometimes, again, uh, when people are gonna break up, I'm like, you're just gonna end up dating the same kind of person again. So why not work on the shit while you're with them sometimes? So, uh, so as far as mystery, yeah, we're still, we're still in touch. I talk to him sometimes and he's still like totally, wonderfully being mystery. The highs, the lows, and the, all the great mysteriness of him. Yeah, but he has two kids now with uh, a woman from the UK. Uh, yeah, it's a son and a daughter, I think. I might be able to add something interesting to that uh, because I know Ingrid, uh, Neil's wife, and uh, often, you probably get this as well, couples see me and my wife as a threat because of the book we, we wrote. And so if there's any sort of instability in the relationship, one of the partners will see us as a hostile presence and it's like an immune system, all these white blood cells trying to push us away. And uh, Ingrid has always been incredibly kind and welcoming to me. And I didn't know all this backstory of, you know, until I read the book, I didn't really know that you like slept with her friend. You, um, but, uh, <laughs> So she's great. So you'll you'll read about her in the book, and she comes across as great. And you might think, yeah, he's exaggerating. He's not. She's fantastic. Thanks. And you know, we should really like to test our relationship with this. If they're, the couple can have dinner with the three of us, right? <laughs> <laughs> so, okay. I have a few questions and then see if there are things. Okay. So good. Yeah. 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 Yeah.
in listening to the three of you talk, I was thinking about the way you feel about relationships as possibly the way 12-step programs feel about addiction and trying to get, avoid the next, you know, get through the next hour without having a drink or what have you, and just trying to get through the next hour still in love with that person. Yeah, that was just me who said that, so I don't want to speak for them. That was just me. So just, they, that was whenever I the Esther may feel totally differently that she's a contrarian, so whatever. <laughs> but, no, but, but, but it's true, it's kind of that one day at a time, like one second at a time. And I think that's like a good technique to think about for drinking. It's like, I'm not going to drink forever, that's scary. I'm just not going to take that drink one step at a time. But it's the difference between I'm not going to drink and I'm not going to cheat versus I wake up and I'm just like, I'm just grateful. I'm happy to be with the person that I'm waking up with after 35 years. You know, not every day, but much of the time. Not something isn't, yes, something else. Right. You know, to deny something doesn't affirm something else. To affirm something is to affirm it. And that means that, that what he was saying, you take the criticism out of it, and you just kind of begin to do a little bit more appreciation. It's so easy to be critical, you know? and to just find fault in the other person. I have yet to see a person come into couples therapy to say, I came to look at my part. Mm. They always come to fix the other. <laughs> when they come alone, maybe they look a little bit at themselves. But in couples, let me tell you the truth about this one and fix it. Mm. And they want you to agree with them, right? Yeah. <laughs> um, I'm a psychologist from Australia, and I uh, do relationship counseling, and I see exactly that a lot. Um, Neil, this, this is uh, amazing that I'm here because I read your book when it came out about 10 years ago in Japan. And as a result of that, I met my uh, partner, who's now gone off downstairs. And I bought her with one of the soldiers here? And I bought her here to New York to, uh, with the idea of proposing to her. And the whole time, the whole nine years that we've been together, I got this battle between you know monogamy and the fact that I now have some game and and I want to use it and it's gotta <laughs> it's gotta break out. And so I, I thank you for leading me to that. It was actually reading your book that led me to go on to be a psychologist. It's pro probably a large part of it. Uh, so thank you for that. And I'm still stuck with that question. I'm I'm supposed to be proposing to her in. Uh, Central Park tomorrow, and I'm sweating because I'm stuck with that question. How do I deal with, you know, the life of monogamy is absolutely terrifying to me. And you alluded to that question at the beginning. If you have any thoughts on that, I'd much appreciate it. My answer will be read the book. That, all of my thoughts are in there, so why don't you get Esther's thoughts on that? I mean, but I don't, you know, the first thing for me is it's a conversation. I mean, the idea that it wouldn't be a battle is strange. You know, uh, the way I call it is the shadow of the third, okay? Every time you choose somebody, they are all the other people you haven't chosen. But they continue to live around you. And some of us create relationships where we completely exile the third and we pretend it doesn't exist and just fantasizing about someone else is already a transgression. And some of us invite the third in our fantasies, we acknowledge it. Why would you choke yourself? No, it's not because you love one person that you're not drawn to others, that you don't fantasize about others, that you don't want to be with others, and your relationship will decide if you can experience it more than just in your mind or not. Most of the time, unfortunately, straight couples' conversation about monogamy goes like this. I catch you, you dead. <laughs> That's the conversation. Start, start. You think she doesn't? That's like the guy who leaves and wants her to stay put. You think she doesn't? Why you think you're the only one who has the, the monopoly on this, on this debate inside of you? No, 
but and and by the way if the conversation is a mature rich conversation about this stuff it actually is really an intimate conversation when two people talk about their lust for elsewhere the, be the best thing that ever happened to me was when Ingrid read this entire book it's all my shitty thoughts I've ever had including about her it's all the shitty things I did all everything you don't want anyone to know it's all in there and once she did it, there was a couple days to deal with it, it changed our entire relationship. Because there's no, there's no, like now she knows all that stuff, she still kind of chooses me, and there's nothing, like we're able to talk about this stuff all the time, stuff we never could have talked about. And so sometimes, in a compassionate way, having these conversations is powerful. Yeah, I, I, I think that the other is something that should be shared by the couple. A living, growing couple isn't in denial about the fact that other people are attractive. They sh it's something they share. Cassie and I have a whole thing worked out where, like, if I'm preoccupied by something and a sexy woman walks by, she'll, like, interrupt me and say, hey, don't miss this, you know, hey, you know, come on. Like, it's something we do together. It's, it's a hobby. A lot, of guys, a, lot of, a lot of guys, like, a lot of people I find that don't even give their partner the choice. They assume it's going to hurt them and then they don't even discuss it. They don't even give them the choice to say, hey, maybe that stuff is okay. You just kind of, there's a word in the book called pathological accommodation, where you're just sort of sacrificing your needs for somebody else's and it still leads to resentment. But what that was one of the problems. Discuss it and the other person, the other person doesn't want to, you know, kind of have that conversation. And they know it's monogamy or Then, then, then you say, look, this is inviting lies. This is when you have a lighter, lying invitee on day one. It's a setup. Because the next time you're going to have some attraction, some thoughts, some question, you're going to have shame about it. You're going to feel like you shouldn't. You're going to not go to her ever to talk about it. And it's going to start to grow or fester in both directions inside of you. You tell her, from me, this is a setup. It's really inviting someone. What does it mean? I want to be close to you, I want to be intimate, but don't tell me anything that makes me uncomfortable? What exactly are we saying? You come with words and all, and you come with questions, and you come with tensions, and you're just starting out, and this is something that is a very, you know, it's very difficult to come today after 20 years of sexual nomadism and become exclusive. <laughs> it used to be that you married and you had sex for the first time, and now you marry and you stop having sex with everybody else. It's a difficult thing to do. Suddenly to think like, and I can't talk about it because it's going to make her, yes, it will make her uncomfortable. You're not going anywhere. But if you can't talk about it, if it's totally off the zone, then the first time something strong is going to happen, you're going to feel entitled. I deserve this. I've been swallowing it for so long. I'm not allowed myself. I haven't given, I am bursting at the seams and I am going to give myself that little treat. I can see the headlines tomorrow, Australian psychiatrist murdered in We have time for one more question, so if you can... Uh, interesting panel. Um, so all three of you are actually featured, from what I understand, in an upcoming movie called Monogamish by Towers Poli. Except it didn't, it made sense for you and for you, didn't make sense until this book, for you to be involved in that. That somehow happened along the way in the development of this, or what, how that sort of come about, and is there something, and maybe all, either or all three of you could speak to anything extra that we might get out of possibly seeing that. Cool, and that's such a short question, we'll answer that, then we'll do one more. Okay. <laughs> so the answer is, I just met Chris, and Chris knew what I was going through, and Tao, who directed the, the documentary, 
Uh, we just talked about the gloves, really raw ones in the middle of it, so I don't even know what I said. It'll be interesting. <laughs> By the way, read the, read the book first, because it goes through that whole journey. One thing I found, though, I found, I don't know if you guys found this, I found that a lot of guys who opened up their relationships gave her more freedom than they took originally. And then they stayed cool and let them know, hey, it was safe, it's okay, and then it went that way. I found that in that kind of those communities, doesn't mean that it's right, I just found that was a common story. Uh, cool, let's do one more question. Basically, the, the challenge comes in right now, which is, you know, we're, we're going to have kids, right? So you're going to have this doubt, you know, that might be from the for someone else, right? So how do you, how do you, you know, get over that? That the kid might be from someone else? Yeah, you know, because it's going to be not monogamous, right? DNA so, testing. <laughs> yeah, obviously, I mean, but like. But the idea talking, is not that it, that's first that, of all, but it's not that it's not monogamous, that. Um, I mean, you should be less worried about this than all the generations before you, for mm -hmm. that matter. You know, that, that, that was the, the much bigger story. Um, why is that your concern? Right, because if it's three in a hundred, it's three, three, at least like three or six people here are going to have legitimate... No. <laughs> Statistically, I'm speaking, there's a good chance... No. So, but if, <laughs> my, my thought, I mean, I don't know, and I'm someone who just had a new son. I love him so much that really, like, if... if I love him as much, and I, you would probably disagree with me on this, but... Now I'm kind of predisposed to disagree, by the way. But I, even if someone dropped a baby off at my doorstep and it wasn't my genetic material, I would, I would love him just as much. So I, I wouldn't like disagree that. at all. Right. At right. all. Right. No. In fact, Sex and Don, we argue against this whole, you know, genetic legacy bullshit argument that is the right. mainstream. Because, yeah, argument. I really feel yeah. that. That's awesome. So, you, yeah. so my thought is, if you love your wife, love your child. Can but, I? I just was, you know, the, this was such a good set of questions. But I think the piece that is that we haven't mentioned that is why is this so threatening and why would you get the, you know, you can't do this in this kind of categoricals? Because this whole romantic ideal that is, after all, the model of the relationships that we are creating at this point is predicated on the notion, and that's the nomadism, right? And then I found Ingrid. And then I settled on this one person in the good sense of the word. I chose. And never before have we been totally lured by this. I was chosen. I am special. I am the one. And if you go anywhere else, it means I'm not enough. And that is the false equation. It has nothing to do with that. You are plenty. You will never be everything. And there is the reality of what we do with others, and we choose, as you said in sentence number one. Yeah, I think there's a, a very unrealistic expectations in American society that you're gonna you're gonna meet someone and the rainbows rainbows are gonna appear, and you're gonna know if she's the one, the one. How many songs, you know, baby, you're the only one, you're the one. Uh, being in a successful relationship is a decision that you make. Now, granted, you might try to be in a successful relationship with someone where it's never going to work because of the chemistry or there's something wrong with them or you or whatever. But assuming you've worked out your shit and your partner's worked out their shit, still, you're going to have to wake up every day and decide to be in that relationship. And I, I personally don't think it should be a lot of work. If it's that much work, maybe it's not the right relationship. Um, but it is work in the sense that it's all, you're always digging into your own authenticity through your own bullshit. Um, but even if they're fantastic, you're still going to have to do that. Don't expect it to be easy. Yeah. 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 Yeah
That's a great line. You're always digging into your own authenticity through your own bullshit. That's a great line. <laughs> so, so, uh, so it's still not too late to, to get their books. Is it too late to get their no, books? Yeah, their, their books? Their books aren't on there, so if you want them signed, I highly recommend them. They're just as wise as they were on stage, and a big, maybe even wiser. Um, and so, big round of applause. Thank you. Said, baby, what's a big deal? Feel what you wanna feel. Say what you wanna say. You're gonna die one day. For example, I could kiss you just because I want to. What's the difference if you turn away? I'm gonna die one day. Why do you waste your time thinking about your reputation? Trying to meet an expectation, wondering what they're gonna say. When everyone you've ever known is headed for a headstone, I don't wanna give the end away, but we're gonna die one day. Your body is an animal, doesn't ask for much. A little music and a soft touch. Why don't you let it out to play? Your heart is in a birdcage Singing in your chest You wanna shut it up but give it a rest You're gonna die one day Why do we waste our time Thinking about a reputation Running from a confrontation Wondering what we ought to say go down we'll go singing to the smoke alarms we'll dance into the ground